The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book. And you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, and today I'm joined by Amanda Ryman, the Vice President of Community Development for Flow Cannabis Company, formerly known as Flocana, for those who have studied the industry for a while. I'm sure you would know both of those names. I'm so delighted to have you here, Amanda. You have such a fantastic background in activism and advocacy and cannabis education and also in cannabis industry, but you know, my heart is really with the activism and education stuff. So I, I really admire the career and contributions you've made in that world. So I'm, I'm so pumped to have you here. And I wanna invite you to introduce yourself a little more and then I'll, I'll ask you a fun question that you might not be prepared for. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so as you said, my name is Amanda Ryman. I am currently the Vice President of Community Development at Flow Cannabis Company, which is an umbrella company that includes the Flowcana brand underneath, as well as some other brands um, like Roots, which is our sun-grown value brand, as well as our venues like the Flow Cannabis Institute, um, the Solar Living Center up in Mendocino County, and our media like Flow Sessions, Flow Films, um, where we try to engage in conversations about sustainability cannabis, social justice, you know, all the things um, that are related to people who are in this industry. Uh, I am a social worker by background and a public health researcher. And I started studying cannabis uh, in the early 2000s through the medical cannabis dispensaries in the San Francisco Bay Area. And from a social work and public health perspective, these were amazing models of community-based healthcare. And I wanted to capture that in research and in print um, because I had a feeling where the industry was going. And even though I absolutely support legalization because nobody should go to jail for a plant, uh, I also knew that living in the United States, we would see cannabis be co-opted by capitalism. Um, I think it would be naive to think we, that that wouldn't happen. So I was very involved in activism leading up to legalization and then have stayed involved to try to help the implementation of the regulations and to try to preserve some of the culture and benefit that I saw in my early research around a bottom-up community-based healthcare model for cannabis. Uh, so that's who I am. Um, I taught at Berkeley for over a decade, classes on drug policy, substance abuse treatment, and sexuality. I lived in Oakland for 15 years, and then about three years ago, I moved up to Mendocino County in the Emerald Triangle uh, to help stand up the Flow Cannabis Institute and work with the Small Farmer Network up here. Amazing. I love it. Uh, well, thank you so much for for the background. I feel like you skipped a bunch of stuff maybe, but you know, there's, there's well, there a is lot another there. question about how I got into the industry. So I, you know, I got to right. save a little. Something. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Before we get into that, I want to, this is my fun question that of course you are going to be more than prepared for, but I'm going to read you a quote of yours from my book. And I'm going to ask you, do you still agree with this? And yeah, it's one of my favorite quotes. And, you know, in, in my book, The Cannabis Business Book, I've interviewed and got the wisdom of 
50 leading cannabis insiders like Amanda and, you know, concentrated, extracted their wisdom and put it in this book. And here's one of my favorite quotes from the entire book by Amanda Ryman. So this, this quote, this isn't one of those jobs that you put away at five o'clock and go home because stigma around cannabis and cannabis consumers is everywhere. So if you're going to be in this industry, you have to be willing to speak up at the dinner table when someone says something negative about cannabis consumers. You have to be willing to go to your child's school when you learn that they're teaching incorrect information about cannabis and demand that they get the truth. You have to be willing to do those things. I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to sound callous, but if you're not willing to do those things, don't be in the industry right now. Wait. Wait five years, 10 years, when cannabis is just like alcohol and working in cannabis doesn't mean you're stigmatized and you don't need to be this big defender. Then get into the industry. Right now, we need people that are going to push us forward and not people that are going to weigh us down. So do you still agree with that? A hundred percent, I still agree with that. Um, you know, just because there's capital involved in cannabis, just because it's an industry doesn't mean it's not still a movement. And the reality is that there are people still going to jail for cannabis. And the even bigger reality is that they are people of color, just like they always have been. So, you know, cannabis legalization definitely is a step in the right direction, but it's not going to undo systemic racism overnight. And if you're not willing to engage in that fight, then this isn't the right industry for you right now. And not to say that five years, 10 years down the line, when saying to you know someone at your kid's school, yeah, I work in the cannabis industry, is just like saying I work in the beer industry. Until we're there, we need people that are gonna speak up. And sometimes those are uncomfortable conversations, but that's who you get to be when you're in on the ground floor of something. You get to be the person with the machete cutting the path. You don't get to benefit from that path already being cut when you are the leader. <laughs> great excellent i love those words so much i'm so honored that i got to put them in my book and that so many people have been able to read those words because i think that message is still true and probably will be true for for quite some time so anyway that being said amanda i want to ask you how or why did you decide to get into the cannabis industry well, I got into the cannabis industry, I always say, before it was an industry. Uh, you know, we had Prop 215 in California that was passed in 96. But for those of you that don't know, Prop 215 did not legalize medical cannabis. It did not establish a regulatory framework for licensing cannabis dispensaries. It simply said if you got caught with cannabis and you had to go to court, you could use your recommendation as a medical defense. So that's when I entered the scene was when that was the only protection we had and storefront dispensaries were still trying to figure out if they were legal. Cultivation certainly wasn't legal. Uh, and so it was really more about what is the impact of prohibition on different communities than it was about how do we create an industry, even a fair and equitable industry. Like that just wasn't on the radar. Uh, so I got into it as a scientist, as a social scientist, and as a medical cannabis patient. Um, I have arthritis. I've been using cannabis medicinally for over 20 years. And I started going to dispensaries in the Bay Area in the early 2000s and really recognizing the value that they were bringing communities in a way that the national healthcare system, in all of its 
issues had really never been able to achieve, which was a successful bottom-up community-based healthcare system where patients were getting their health needs met, their social needs met, their psychological needs met in a way that was patient-centered and compassionate. And so I decided to study this model with the recognition that, as I said before, once we move towards legalization, we would see capitalism take over. And I wanted there to be some evidence of the benefit of a different way. So I started to study dispensaries and I did my doctoral dissertation uh, at Berkeley on medical cannabis dispensaries and how they operated as health service providers. And that was in 2005. And then I went to work for Berkeley Patients Group. They were one of the oldest dispensaries in the country and they were very forward thinking. They always have been. And they brought me on to do research, to look at their patient population, see what their needs were. And that's when I started studying the use of cannabis as a substitute for opiates and other drugs. And I published my first paper on that in 2008, so 12 years ago, uh, with the idea that medical cannabis patients were actively choosing to use cannabis because of the potential harms of other substances and their experience with other substances. So that research was really starting to take off. And then uh, Melinda Haig shut Berkeley Patients Group down, along with some other dispensaries. And so I left that job and I went to work for Drug Policy Alliance. I figured if we were still in a situation where someone like Berkeley Patients Group, who was doing everything right, and that was really contributing to the public health of their community, if they could get shut down, then the law was not where it needed to be and that we needed to protect these institutions. And so I went to Drug Policy Alliance in 2012 and started working on legalization. And that culminated with the passage of Prop 64 in 2016. And then I decided to leave that role and go and work with Flow Cannabis Company so that I could start work uh, boots on the ground on the implementation. And I decided to do that through community development because I've always felt that cannabis needs a ombudsman to guide it into communities. Uh, people have been affected by cannabis propaganda. They don't know what to expect. They don't understand the public health benefits of regulating cannabis. So I've always seen myself as kind of that in between the community and the cannabis world to help integrate cannabis into communities in ways that is beneficial for both sides. And so that's the work that I'm doing today up in Mendocino. I have a feeling I'm gonna say this a lot today Wow. Just, just wow. I'm, I'm so blown away by, you know, everything you've done and continue to do for this community. And so I'm, I'm curious, what is your highest power or superpower that allows you to contribute and, and lead in, in such a big way? Well, I think it's probably two things. I think it's people. I've always been very good at knowing people and working with people and understanding their needs and understanding their unspoken words. It's why I became a social worker. Uh, it's because I've just always been drawn to hearing people's stories and then taking that information and then trying to develop it into some kind of practical way for them to get better or their things to be better for them. So that's something I've always used through my entire career. And then the second thing is I, I think I've always been really good at seeing the view from 10,000 feet above. Um, I, I'm very good at seeing all the pieces and how they fit together um, and then seeing which is the right path to take and not getting, getting so mired down in the details that I don't see the forest for the trees. And that's something that's required when you're doing policy work because policy work is incremental 
You never get what you want. It's always two steps forward, one step back. And it's understanding more than anything how all of the different interests interact off each other so that you can find a common way forward. And when people get so bogged down in the details, they don't have the ability to do that. And then they're just disappointed. Uh, so you have to be able to see the victories. And that takes a very, very large view of the issue. Mm. So I'm hearing taking a big picture view and also you know, the intangible people skills of being able to understand and relate to others. So, yeah. all right. Okay. We're going to, I'm going to put that in my pocket. Maybe that'll come up later. I don't know if there's a cape, of, if there's a cape for that or <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what my emblem would be, <laughs> but That's we'll work fair. on that. We'll work on that. Yeah. So I want to shift gears to, to California right now where, as we briefly chatted earlier, there's the largest fire that California has ever seen is raging on right now, not to mention the pandemic, not to mention all the other stuff that's going on in the world. So I'm curious from where you sit, you know, in working and collaborating with craft cannabis farmers and being right in the heart of industry over there in California. Um, what is it like? What's the state of things right now? Like, what's the, is it business as usual? Is it, you know, or is it a crisis? Like, what's going on? Because I'm, I'm out here siloed in New York. Every, obviously, everyone's pretty quarantined. So I'm just curious, like, what's happening? Oh, gosh, what isn't happening? Um, I think we're all definitely experiencing Maslow's hierarchy of needs scenario right now in California because we do have the pandemic and we have the wildfires and we have an increase in fascism. Like it's all happening together. And so it's like choose choose your like life ending catastrophe of the day, whatever's the most imminent threat. And right now the most imminent threat is the fire. Uh, so right now, a lot of us are focused on that. And you have a lot of farmers who have been evacuated. I mean, if you can, those folks who are listening who may not understand the Emerald Triangle region, it's basically three counties in Northern California, Humboldt, Trinity, and Mendocino. And they come to a point, they, they look like a triangle. And then there's this point where all three counties come together, where it's like the heart of the Emerald Triangle. That area has been evacuated. Uh, if you saw HBO's or Netflix special Murder Mountain, Murder Mountain has been evacuated. So there are a lot of cannabis farmers that are dealing with evacuations right now, which brings on all kinds of issues. Uh, we're in September. We're very close to outdoor cannabis being finished. We're very close to Croptober, as we call it, which means that you have a lot of flour that is fairly ripe, but definitely isn't ripe enough to pick, um, but is susceptible to ash and smoke and other contaminants in the air. Uh, so you've got that concern. You've got the concern about being able to access your crops in restricted areas so that you can water and that you can tend to them even if you've been evacuated. So there's that issue. And then you have the issue of farms actually burning down. Now, thankfully, this very, very large fire that we're dealing with right now, the August complex fire, is burning primarily in the Mendocino National Forest. So remote areas, very difficult to fight the fire in those areas because of the terrain, but not a whole lot of people 
or properties that are being used for agriculture. When you start getting on the periphery of the forest, however, you start to really see an increase in ag activity. And so that's a huge concern. So yes, um, farmers can't get crop insurance. Uh, and then we also have the issue of just being a small sun-grown farmer in the state of California, which is extremely difficult. Uh, licensing is difficult and is, it is expensive. Um, there's all kinds of issues related to environmental compliance that are very, very costly. So we're taking a system that is already extremely fragile and basically hanging on by a thread and adding a natural disaster to it. And so that can be catastrophic, but I will say that this community, and we were talking about this earlier, is nothing if not resilient. Uh, you know, they, they've, been, they've been through it, you know, and whether it was Black Hawk helicopters during prohibition, chasing people through the woods because they were growing cannabis, whether that was having your parent go away to prison for being a cannabis farmer, or just the realities and economies of rural life. Um, it's a difficult place to be, and it's got a lot of benefits, but it also has a lot of liabilities. And so I think right now the community is adapting, um, but we still have COVID and we still have these other things going on. So it's been really tough, but at the same time, um, I love this community. I love the Mendocino community and they are extremely strong and they look after each other. And that's something that I haven't experienced in urban areas. So I would say that that is an asset that will help them get through this and come out the other side even stronger. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's a lot of stuff to deal with out there. And my heart goes out to the whole Emerald Triangle and, you know, just imagining working so hard on, on your crop, your farm, your business, your life, and then, you know, on top of COVID, having to deal with this massive natural disaster. Sheesh. Oh, man. Luckily, at, at the very least, there's a plant that's very helpful for stress relief that I enjoy called cannabis. Mother Definitely. Nature knew what she was doing when she gave <laughs> us cannabis, let me tell you, because no matter how stressful things get, it's like, well, at least I have this plant that's tailor-made to relieve stress. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Amanda, I want to ask you about some news out of Oakland this week, which was um, the first publicly funded equity incubator shared kitchen. And, you know, I think this is maybe the first real program that is actually going to seriously support people to get into the industry and make a living and, and create some wealth. And, you know, the first, it's mind-blowing to me that it took this long to, to get like a solid equity initiative out there into the world. And at the same time, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, you know, other places will follow suit and that this model will prove that, you know, oh, we should be doing this everywhere. So I just wanted to ask you about that and, and hear your thoughts and, you know, my maybe my surprise is just because I am too optimistic about and and it's just so obvious that that's like how things ought to be. But of course, the realities of policy work, as you alluded to, and dealing with government and you know the status quo, which is r resistant to change. You know, things obviously take time. So anyway, I wanted to ask you how do how do you feel about that, and do, where do you see the future of these kind of equity initiatives going?
Uh, so first of all, I am thrilled to pieces that Oakland is doing this. Um, you know, one of the adages that I really stand by and has really driven my career and my life and my businesses is that if you give a person a fish, they eat for a day. And if you teach a person to fish, they eat for a lifetime. And I think, unfortunately, at the beginning, a lot of our equity programs were just giving people fish. Uh, they were just saying, here's a license. Go. Good luck. Um, when the reality is they needed to be teaching people how to fish because business is tough. And, you know, we can't assume that just because someone was involved in the cannabis space in the unregulated marketplace and went to jail for it, that they have the skills that they need and the support system that they need to run a successful business. I mean, even people that study business for years and years and years don't run successful businesses. So one of the faults of the equity system from the get-go was that we were just giving people a front-of-the-line license and we weren't supporting their business development. And that was really the impetus behind the hood incubator. Uh, so when I was um, in Oakland, I was on the Cannabis Advisory Committee for the city of Oakland. And this was when we were talking about establishing the equity program. We were basically writing the equity program. And one of the constant criticisms that I had of this program is that you're just giving people licenses and you're not helping them grow as businesses. And even if you're, you know, saying, well, you have space, like, you know, your equity partner is going to give you space to run your business. They're not getting business support services. They're not getting that incubation that businesses need in order to give them a chance. And so out of that discussion, um, some amazing um, uh, ladies and, and folks in Oakland started the hood incubator. And the purpose of that was to bring equity people into a space where they could learn business skills, where they could learn how to do a business plan, where they could learn how to talk to investors. And this is really important, not just to help ensure business success, but it's important to prevent things like predatory investing, where you have these white business partners um, that come in and say, hey, you know, we'll fund your business. You just have to give us 51% of it. And then they really have no you know, they don't really care what the outcome is, right? They're just looking to flip a business. Um, meanwhile, the equity partner, this may be their life savings that they're putting into this business. So I think that those are the models we should be looking to, uh, models that give people actual business support, that offer them the camaraderie of sharing spaces, of sharing costs. I think that they should be public-private partnerships because I think that communities all around have a vested interest um, in seeing this. So. Uh, I think that it's a really great step in the right direction. However, I do want to point out that we're talking about social equity for people that want to get involved in the cannabis industry. And that is different than reparations. I think a separate conversation is what reparations do we owe the Black community for the harms that we have done and the name of the war on drugs. And I think that these are both very important conversations. I would love to see financial reparations to black communities that have been impacted by the drug war. And end of story, full stop. Here you go. I think separately, we need to talk about people that have been impacted by the drug war that do want to get involved in the cannabis industry and how do we best support them? And I don't think it's just giving them a license or giving them money. I think it's giving them support and following them through their journey and making sure that that support continues. So I, I do like the model that Oakland is rolling out and um, hopefully it will lead to a larger percentage of success. On the topic of reparations for the war on drugs, I have 
what I think is a quite an elegant, simple solution, and nobody wants to hear it, but that doesn't stop me from saying it, which is the war on drugs institutionalized the harm of black and brown men, men of color, you know, disproportionately. We're building a new industry. Let's institutionalize at the outset investment into black and brown men and black and brown communities and those same communities that have been disproportionately harmed. Like off the top, let's just give those community leaders and, and those communities, you know, some portion of all cannabis earnings, you know, for the next, I don't know, call it 50 years. It's not rocket science. I feel like that would do the job, you know, assuming all the money wasn't finagled and like, you know, bureaucratic up or whatever. Um, I don't know. Am I, am I being too, too naive and thinking that that's like a, that should have been like the first option instead of, you know, we're having to incrementally like get like teeny pieces of support. Um, what do you No, think? I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, uh, you know, one of the aspects of Prop 64 where we tried to address that was for the, the community reinvestment program. So there is a grants program that is growing, growing up to $50 million a year that is for communities that have been impacted by the drug war to apply for grant money for public health services and social services and educational services. It's definitely still a step away from just, here's a check. We know that you'll know what to do right for your community with it, and it does tie it to actually a grant proposal for a program, but it's not tied to a desire to get into the industry. And I think that's kind of the key is that like right now, most of the equity programs or the reparations programs or whatever you want to call them require that the person getting the benefit wants to be a cannabis business person. And I think what you and I are saying and what you're saying with, you know, just giving reparations to communities and what we're trying to do with the community reinvestment fund is that there needs to be a financial benefit to communities that have been harmed by the drug war regardless of whether or not they want to join the cannabis industry. Like it's, we keep, we conflate those issues, but they're really two separate issues. It's, we harmed you a lot and we have destroyed a lot of what made your community strong by arresting a lot of people in your community. And then they can't, you know, all of the systemic racism that goes along with the criminal injustice enforcement of drug laws we want to give you money so that you can try to revive programs and that you can try to build the community back up that we destroyed versus you're somebody that wants to work in the cannabis industry. You haven't had the same opportunities because of the drug war and the racism associated with that. We want to give you support to move into the industry. Very important paths, two different approaches. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's like crazy to say that you know, my opinion, of course, crazy to say that, oh, you can have a chance to participate in the industry. And now we're cool. Like, absolutely not. It's, you know, the, the reinvestment, again, like the reinvestment needs to be institutionalized and baked into the fabric of the industry. And I challenge every single cannabis entrepreneur to do their part as well, whether that's reinvesting 10% of your profits or revenues or or whatnot into community reinvestment programs, even programs that have nothing to do with cannabis. Like I am contributing 
you know, from every book sale to SSDP to Defy Ventures, you know, to, and outside of that, I've done fundraisers for groups that, you know, teach filmmaking and like art stuff in communities that have been harmed. And to me, like, if you're profiting off the cannabis plant, you have an ethical obligation to make community reinvestment part of your business plan. Period. 100%. 100%. <laughs> oh, 100%. Um, you know, so one organization that I'm involved in is the Cannabis Impact Fund. And so that's basically what they're doing. They're bringing together a collection of businesses that are willing to pledge either 1% of sales or stock options or some kind of value to their company um, on a regular basis that is then going back into community organizations that support racial justice. And, you know, it's an opportunity for cannabis businesses to get together and do this collectively, which I think is important. But I also think that each business needs to better think about who is in their community and who has been harmed by the drug war and what are they doing? And, you know, there was a time when it was hard to give away money as a cannabis company. Like, they didn't want it. Nonprofits didn't want it. I mean, I can tell you stories. I won't name names, but big nonprofits that refused to take our money because it came from cannabis. That's not the case anymore. And there's a really amazing partnerships that can be developed that are very beneficial um, to both the cannabis company and the community. Yeah. And I, I'll just add to that. One thing that comes up is, you know, seeing big mainstream brands like Dr. Bronner's and Ben and Jerry's taking public stands of support on cannabis and, and, you know, even doing that is something that I think like would have been unheard of just a few years ago and really does help to challenge the stigma and normalize cannabis. Um, Amanda, I want to shift gears. I, I, I want to ask you, what are you most excited about right now that, of the stuff that you're working on? Ah, it's all exciting, Mike. It's just all exciting. Um, but of stuff we haven't talked about so far, um, I am starting or have started a business. Um, and so I would say what I'm really excited about right now is the DIY cannabis space. Um, I'm really excited about alternatives to the commercial marketplace, um, meeting somewhere in between the unregulated uh, market and the highly overregulated market and thinking more about the dispensary model of the early 2000s that I studied and how do we bring that virtual? How do we take all of the best aspects of that model, the compassion, patient-centered care, uh, the intentionality of what we were doing, and how do we bring that into a COVID 2020 digital world? And so what I came up with is Personal Plants, which I'm launching in November. And it's an online platform to support the home cultivation and processing of therapeutic plants and fungi. So thinking about uh, media platforms like the Food Network and how it really helped the average person make homemade meals, no matter if they had two hours to spend on it or 10 minutes, um, how they became a trusted source of information about food and recipes. Uh, we wanna do the same thing, but for home cultivation. And so I'm really excited about this because, um, you know, through my entire career, the one thing that hasn't changed uh, is the person's relationship with the plant. And no matter what the commercial marketplace looks like, no matter what the policies are like, 
when you really talk about the benefits of plant medicine, a huge aspect of that is that relationship and the fact that you're not just going to a drugstore and getting a prescription filled, but you're actually spending the time to cultivate that relationship with the plant uh, to understand more about how it's going to make you well and then to experience that wellness. It's a slow movement for medicine that we uh, have seen replicated in food and, and other areas of wellness. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and we'll be, like I said, launching in November, uh, all free content, uh, videos, articles, shopping lists, uh, everything you need to do your own plant medicine journey at home. I absolutely love this idea. In fact, I was walking home today, running an errand and walking by this house that had a beautiful garden. And I just couldn't help but think to myself, I want to have more plants. Like this is the, this is the one thing I want right now more than anything is more plants. And so, uh, you know, another thing that you, you said that caught my ear there was about people's relationship with the plant not changing, which, you know, made me reflect on my own relationship with not only the cannabis plant, but plants in general. And I would say that for me, the relationship has changed in that it's, it's only grown, like my appreciation, curiosity and interest in not only the cannabis plant, but in plants in general, only grows over time. And I'm just like, you know, to the point where I'm like, do I need to go and like take a biology class so I could really get into the dirt and into the weeds and, you know, all the puns I can think of. But I think this is just fantastic. And I, I'm so excited for, to hear about this and, and for the upcoming launch just in time for my birthday, because I am going to be this aspiring green thumb at home. That's really, especially during quarantine and COVID, it's like, what better at home hobby than growing your own medicine, growing your own food, which is also medicine, by the way, yes. and and just being self-sufficient and, and deepening the relationship with the plant in, in, that, uh, in, in such a big way. Um, so that's something I, I'm excited about. And I'm, I'm so delighted that you, of all people, are taking on that, um, that effort because I trust you to teach me how to grow my own plants and, or, or bring the community together of the folks that can help me and others on that journey. Well, great. Yeah, you know, there's so many people that feel that growing your own cannabis, processing your own cannabis is extremely complicated because a lot of the content that's out there right now um, are people trying to show that they're the best. And so there's a lot of, you know, this is my way of doing it. I know the right way. If you don't do it this way, you're not going to get a quality product. Um, there's a lot of intimidation, especially for women uh, in the home grow space. And so I want to deliver this in a format that feels comfortable and familiar for people and where they feel like I'm meeting them where they're at which has been a key through my entire cannabis career and social work career, is that you have to meet people where they're at, especially when you're talking about a highly stigmatized substance. Because yeah, I'm comfortable with cannabis because I've been around it for decades and I've been doing this for so long. But that may not be the case for like the 70 year old woman in a newly legal environment who doesn't really even wanna tell people that she's using cannabis, doesn't wanna to go to a dispensary, but still wants to access the plant. 
So I'm really hoping to bring that world to a whole new group of people that are just now getting interested in not just cannabis, but mushrooms as well, because that's another really big up and coming field um, that I don't think will look like cannabis when it comes to commercial regulation. We can talk about that on another show. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a whole other episode. Uh, Amanda, I want to shift gears into the coaching portion of the show. And uh, so I'm going to ask you, what is your biggest roadblock or challenge right now? So, you know, I would say that right now, my biggest challenge is that, you know, I'm starting this business and I have an amazing team of business advisors and folks that really understand and are seasoned entrepreneurs. But my background is not in business. My background is in academia. I'm a researcher. And even though there's a lot of, of skills that I'm taking into the business world, uh, it's still, I don't necessarily speak the language. And I don't necessarily think about um, you know, this in a business context as much as I think about it as an, in an educational context. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts or advice for a non-business person who is getting engaged in business and trying to bring their skills uh, into their project. Yeah, so I'm hearing that you're launching a business venture, you don't have a formal business background, and you're wondering, how do I feel more confident or, or competent in this endeavor? So is that right? Am I hearing you correctly? Is that okay? Right, right. So how do I translate my research skills and my academia skills? Like what of, which of those do you feel are assets in the business world? And all what are them. kind of the liabilities? Yes. I guess all. more, what are the liabilities? Yeah, so it's a great, I, I, I love this question. And I'm going to take a moment to, instead of coaching, to, to do a bit of teaching for the folks who might be listening. And I'm going to share a framework that, I heard from a rabbi once. I, I can't remember who, but Good I think source. It, yeah, I, I think it's a great framework for for evaluating almost anything, but we're gonna apply it here. There's no name for it that I know of. I've kind of called it the rabbi quadrant or quadratic, but I don't really have a real name for it. And and the 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 way it works, and you know, I, I I'll like map imagine like a tic-tac-toe or like a crossboard, you know, there's for, for what you described, there's four, at least four ways we can look at it. You know, one is there's the positive positive, there's the positive negative, the negative negative, and the negative positive. So for example, when you're saying, you know, I don't have a formal business background, right? And, and you're asking this question, there's, you know, there's positive in not having a formal business background. There's this, you know, this concept of like beginner's mind and and you're not gonna be, you know, biased by business training or this is the way it has to be, which I think is required to innovate. And when you're building a business, you know, as a startup entrepreneur, whatever, you have to be creative, you have to be innovative. So perhaps that's an advantage, right? That's the positive positive. You know, the positive negative might be that, you know, I don't have this business background. And so I might not know what I don't know, which is like the blind spots, right? 
Um, and, and I think that's where your fear is coming from a little bit. And I, I, would, I would say if you have a good team around you, that's how you kind of remove those blind spots. And, you know, I would say with your background, you know, how is business really much different from, you know, what I heard you say your strengths were earlier, which was like orchestrating and relating with people and being focused on the big vision. That's all, that's all business is, you know, and then just add some math to it of the dollars and cents. So, so I'll go with now the negative negative is, um, let's see, the negative negative would be, actually, you know what, I completely messed this up. Because <laughs> what I, yes, it's true. <laughs> the, you know, the negative, the negative side would have been, you don't have the business experience. Now there's the good and the bad about that. And now the positive, positive, and the positive negative would have been, I have this social work and policy experience, research, all that stuff that you named is all necessary in business. And then there's the positive negative, which is, you know, I have all this experience, how is this going to handicap me in these business settings? And I think it's actually, you know, that aspect is the kind of potential fear that I'm hearing from you of, well, I don't have this, this business background. So what, you know, the beautiful thing about cannabis is so many people and people that have been successful have come to this from a completely different background. You know, there's a gentleman, Niall Demena, who's in my book. I know who, Niall. Yeah, yeah. So he was a, a technical writer, an English tutor, right? Or English teacher and, you know, built a biotech cannabis company that's doing quite well. And so the, in a non-traditional industry, such as cannabis, there, first of all, you know, a traditional background is really kind of irrelevant in some ways. This is a departure from my normal kind of coaching style, but I'm just going to tell you that, you know, I'm, I'm, this is the mansplaining version of coaching, I guess, <laughs> which is like, I'm just going to tell you that you have all the skills you need, full stop, to run a successful business. And what's very normal is this experience you you shared of wondering of, oh man, like I don't have this business, you know, training. I don't know all the lingo. I don't know all the stuff. I think that's something every entrepreneur experiences no matter if they went to Harvard Business School or if they worked at Big Bank or any of that stuff. Um, so, and to your point, you said earlier, I thought this was great, was you're like, there's people who have come into cannabis with premier business experience and that wasn't, you know, that didn't get the job done for them. So I find it a little ironic that you have this concern and at the same time I totally get it because starting a business is scary and you know there's often going to be moments in any entrepreneur's journey where they wonder am I in over my head do I know do I have what it takes am I blah 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 blah, blah. and all that that self-talk that that could undermine us sometimes and you know trust me I'm no stranger to it for me it's just so obvious that all of your skills are transferable and you ask the right question of, you know, how do I take these and make them 
assets. And I would even go one step further is I would challenge you to think about any weakness, quote unquote, that or you may perceive that you may have and actually flip it and find the strength in it and, and find like, oh, this is going to be my competitive advantage because I have this experience with, with policy or with social work or with, you know, community development. Like all of that is business. So I'm going to pause there because I'm doing way too much talking and not enough coaching. And so I'm just going to ask you, here's, I'm back into coaching mode. What do you think of all that? <laughs> uh, I mean, it makes total sense, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, it, it is definitely something that's just the nature of entrepreneurship is that, you know, half the time you're like, oh my God, this is the best idea ever. I can't believe I'm doing this. This is going to be amazing. And half the time you're like, what the hell am I doing this? <laughs> Um, and so at, it absolutely vacillates. It's mostly excitement. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, some of the, the things that I feel might be vulnerabilities or liabilities, like, I mean, you know, not that business people are ruthless, but I, you know, I'm very, like I said, I'm very in tune with people and how they're feeling. And so I'm like, you know, don't want to put anyone in a, in an awkward position. And I don't want to ask people for things that they can't give me. And, you know, I, I getting over that, but then thinking about how that might be a strength because people may not be used to that kind of consideration. And it actually may be endearing or something where they're like, oh, this person is actually thinking about my feelings and, you know, how this might work for me. And so I, that, that's the kind, I mean, it's interesting because my team, you know, my, my business advising team, my finance team, my legal team, my branding agency, my tech agency, all women. So we are 100% women led company. And it's interesting because that's not because I had a bunch of qualified dudes that I was like, no, we want to be a women-led company. It was just that the people I gravitated towards, the people that gravitated towards this project tended to be women. And so it's been a very interesting dynamic because we're all women with fairly masculine energies, which I think is a good balance. Um, but, you know, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Like, should I be seriously finding a dude? to put in this mix? Um, or is it just the organic, who's the right person? And so far, it's just been a bunch of badass ladies. <laughs> I love I love this question. I love where this is going. <laughs> There's two things in there. I, I'll, I'll respond to your question first, which is, gosh, I don't know. I think, first of all, I know some of the women who are supporting you in this venture. And it's like a an all-star team of rock star women. And I'm tempted to say, I'll be your token white guy. Like, put me <laughs> in, you know, like, I'd love to. And it's funny because, uh, like, my my brain, like, my gut response was like, well, what do you need a man for? Like, fuck it. Like, what, you know, no, whatever. You know, if you find someone great that, like, makes sense for the business, great. Otherwise, the only thing I can think of, which... You know, I might catch some flack for this, but that's okay. It was like, you know, because we still live in this white man's world and there is the privilege of like, you know, and, and the real impact of just having like, you know, the confident white man who comes in in the suit and is like, listen here, Buck, like this is how it's going to be. 
unfortunately, we're conditioned as a society to to obey that for for whatever reasons. And so I think that's kind of like the one real thing I can think of is that, you know, that's the one thing you, you miss out on. How much is that worth? I don't know. Probably not that much is my guess. But I, I want to say one, one other thing, which you brought up something that is so relevant to me, like that I battle with all the time is this thing about being ruthless versus being compassionate. And I want to I wanna challenge you to be ruthlessly compassionate and make that the defining aspect of your business. Because I, I'll tell you, I, I have this belief and it's a story to an extent that you have to be ruthless in business or I have to be ruthless in business. And one thing that cannabis has always reminded me of is that actually in cannabis particularly, compassion has to be a part of your business model because the the real cannabis consumers and the real cannabis people have that expectation especially when it comes to cannabis it's funny one of my friends joked recently he was like in cannabis the customer is always wrong and that's like his experience buying you know on the unregulated market for years which i can understand but in in any case i i think actually i i w- i believe I have no data here, so I'm just speculating, full disclaimer, that if, in, if you made compassion like one of your key differentiators and was like, this is baked into everything we do, I bet that would be good for your business, given you know the business and the, the audience and the ethos and all that stuff. Everything else, you know, I, just to take a to go back to the first part a little you know, about your research skills and your policy background and not having a business background, you know, business is all just models. It's not really anything so complicated, right? It's just like, there's a few rules and a few things that you could easily teach yourself, you know, that I feel like you already probably know, honestly, intuitively. So I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the border of rambling. So I'm gonna pause. Well, I think that you're right. Um, and everything uh, always appears more complicated to us when we don't understand it and before we learn it. And that's why I've always been a lifelong learner. Learning is my way of demystifying things that seem really complicated or scary to me. And so, you know, I did, I like, you know, I got a bunch of books on business and I, you know, read the books of the angel investors and I read all the stuff. And, you know, no, it didn't teach me how to be a business person, but what it did teach me is that business is not as complicated as I thought it was when I didn't know anything about it. And so I think that was like a big piece for me was saying, oh, okay, I, I could learn business. Like I could, I, under, I could, I understand this, even if I don't have this background. Um, and that was very important. And I'm still learning and, you know, trusting myself, which is hard. Um, especially as a woman in this field, um, you know, we are given messages not to trust ourselves. And that's something that, um, you know, is, is something that we all always have to work on. I want to invite you to use your superpower, one of them. I'm sure there's more than the two you've named, but the, the two that you named, one of them was to take that 10,000 feet up, mile high view. And I would encourage you 
you know, to rotate that and also take like the long-term view five to 10 years out and, and just imagine what kind of business are you building and what does that look like? And in the spirit of planning for success, just kind of thinking what's the 10,000 square, 10,000 foot up view. I almost said square feet. I'm like house hunting over here. Um, what's the 10,000, 100,000, 10 million, whatever height view of the business that you want to build and, and the success scenario five, 10 years out? Yeah, that's very, very helpful. I mean, I you know, at, at its heart, I want this business to just become a normalized source of information and, in, and education for people that want to grow at home. I don't want it to be like in the future, I want it to be just like the Food Network. You know, nobody's like, oh, you're going on the Food Network again? Do you have a problem with food? No, they, they know what, there's none of that assumption. Or like, oh, you're baking again? I think you have a problem. You need to go to treatment. Like, no, nobody's saying that. Um, and so I, that's what I want to get to. And I feel like cannabis is going that way. And this platform is going to help it along because it's going to bring that message out to people when we don't have to wait for them to just come around to it on their own. So that really is the long-term goal for personal plants um, is to really just normalize the process to where it isn't like, oh, you're going to do this. It's just like any other activity that you engage in to support your wellness, whether it's yoga or cooking, uh, you know, a home cooked meal or meditating or growing medicine. And I'm going to ask you that this will, Maybe be my second to last question. What is the one thing that personal plants has to get right that will make everything else easier or irrelevant in achieving that vision? Um, I think the number one, that's a good question. And I think the number one thing is establishing that authority voice. Um, you know, right now the home growth space is so fragmented. Um, you know, people are basically going to YouTube and looking at what video has the most views. That's how they're deciding is the expert content, or they're getting into very, very dense literature from expert growers that is not applicable to their skill set, time, money, or energy. Um, so, um, yeah. All right, I lied. I have to ask another question, which is, what's the one thing? that you can do to establish that authority that will make all the other things irrelevant or easier? It's the mindfulness and intentionality of content. Um, you know, so much of what's out there on the internet right now is what I call shiny object sites, where they just want people to spend time there and they really don't care if they get anything out of it. And if someone comes away after two hours and hasn't learned anything, as long as they spent two hours there, that's good enough. And it's this, again, my background as an educator, um, I want it to, to be intentional. So I want people to go to the site and come away, even if they did spend an hour thinking, wow, you know, I learned how to make a topical and I was able to watch a short video on mushrooms and I learned about a new book I want to check out and a podcast I want to listen to. Um, so I think it, if in order to be that authority, we have to maintain intentionality and everything that's on that site has to be there for a reason and a purpose and has to engage the consumer, but also has to elevate their knowledge. 
And um, I think if we can do that, then, you know, just like when I want to find anything out about drug policy, I go to drugpolicy.org immediately, Drug Policy Alliance, immediately, because every piece of content on there is factual, it has been vetted, it is written by experts, and it runs the gamut of anything I'd need to know around drugs. And so I want people to look at this as that type of site, but also that's super fun and whimsical and is, is helping them engage in something that is a pleasure. Amazing. Okay, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring us home soon, I promise. But <laughs> I'm just curious, this is a, a simple one. Who would you rather have build a cannabis education community? A businessman or an educator, social worker, lifelong learner, committed activist advocate woman? Oh no, it's absolutely B. It's 100% B. And I think that is what people are seeing. I mean, you know, I've been doing a lot of fundraising and obviously you're selling yourself and, you know, that's what I'm selling. It's like, look, I know how to do this. Like I've been an educator in this space for decades. I've been studying how people relate to this plant for decades. Like I, I completely know how to do this. Um, and then, you know, it all becomes a matter of do people have enough confidence in your ability to carry out the business side to give you the money? Because they absolutely believe in the concept. They believe in me. Um, and I think they believe in the business. And so I have had a lot of luck in that arena. Uh, but as you go after bigger money, people start to look, I think, for more business um, confidence that they are going to get a return on their investment. Um, but it is still about who's bringing the business forward. And yes, I think for this particular business and the content I'm trying to develop, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I do think I'm probably one of the very few people in the world that could do this right. I would agree with that. And this is the confidence that I want to hear. Uh, <laughs> and this is, you know, this lets me know that I hope I did a, a decent job in and getting you away from that doubt, fear uh, stage and a little, you know, raising the energy to more confident, you know, like when you were just talking a, a few seconds ago, it felt like, all right, like you're ready to go kick ass in any endeavor. And it's funny because so much of business performance and professional performance I, I've learned is just what's your energy level? You know, you could be the smartest person in the world, but if you're, you know, stuck in fear, doubt, shame, sadness, whatever, you're not going to perform at a high level. Whereas when you're fired up and charged up and, you know, ready to rip the roof off the building, you know, that's a powerful place to come from and, and get shit done from. So um, I, I just want to encourage you to remember that, feeling and remember that truth that you just shared about you're one of the few qualified people in the whole world to do this venture. And I'm going to challenge you a bit on what you said about the business side of things. Cause if, if I were talking to a credible investor and said, Hey, I'm a kick-ass operator. I can get this done. Find someone better than me. I dare you. And if they have questions about the business side, that's supposed to be their job to an extent of like, hey, here's the business model. How do we, you know, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Investor, like you're, 
you tell me how to make it better. You tell me how to mitigate the risk. Like you, you help me make sure that you get your ROI. Like, aren't you supposed to know how to do that stuff? So I, I would challenge you a bit on like, you know, if, if they're sold on you, then the business model, if they have a question about the business model, I would enroll them and challenge them to be like, hey, you know, this is like, this is the model that I have in mind. I think this is how it's going to work. You tell me how to make it better because they're so, uh, listen, I'm, I'm going to say something. These investors can be so smug sometimes about, you know, poking holes in it and, and finding all the things that's wrong with whatever. But they're not the ones in the arena. And so I, I'm just going to caution any entrepreneur out there who might be fundraising and whatever. Give the investors respect. Listen to them, of course. But also take everything you hear from them with a grain of salt because their job is to find all the reasons it can go wrong and to push your buttons and to see how you as an entrepreneur respond to pressure. So, you know, just keep that in mind. And I, I will end my rant there and then I will ask you my serious last question. Okay. Which is, what is your biggest takeaway from our conversation here today? Well, I think my, you know, it might sound simple, but I think my biggest takeaway from our conversation is really owning the fact that I am one of the handful of people in the world that could really do what I'm trying to do right. And I think that there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of folks getting into the cannabis space that aren't doing right by the consumer. And um, I think that there's a desire to return to that philosophy. And I feel like I'm the one that knows how to do that. So I think the takeaway is to just be confident in the fact that I am the right person for this very particular job. Nice. I dig it. I like that. I feel like I did my, my work here today. You did. Good. Yay. Yay. I, and, and so I, I have the joy. I love my job because I get to help make sure that people like you have the, the energy and enthusiasm to go forward in the great work you all are doing. And I feel like, all right, I did something for the community today. So Yes. And, and it Yay. feels so great. It feels so great. I'm going to say one last thing, which came to mind for me about business. I'm going to simplify business as much as possible right now or attempt to, which is business is simply the act of systematically creating value. So it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that, which is, you know, if you create value and find a way to be compensated for it or capture that value when you exchange the value that's all it is everything else is details so you know if if you're i i would encourage you to just to to keep in mind that what you're building is going to be ultimately something that helps a lot of people and offers a lot of value to a lot of people and there's money in that no matter what way shape or form it happens so, you know, everything else is details, in my opinion. Um, but then again, what do I know? Anyway, <laughs> Amanda, thank you so much. This was so much fun. You've got me fired up. And well, so <laughs> I'm, I'm so grateful to, to know you and to be able to connect with you. And I wish you nothing but great success on all your future endeavors. And I thank you for all the work you've done with the Machete 
paving the way for people like me and so many more. So thank you so much. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.